This podcast was recorded and produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Hi, this is Amar Rahman. You're listening to episode three of Vice's special three-part election podcast for 2016. Today we're talking about media coverage of the election and what it's like to be a journalist held hostage by one of the longest campaigns in Australian history. We're going to talk about the gay marriage plebiscite and Scott Morrison's painful personal revelations of what it's like to grow up as a straight white male Christian in this country. Also, Vice host Madison brings us politics in the wild from a board game night. This has been the second longest election campaign in Australia's history, the longest in over 60 years. Also possibly the most boring, but we decided to do a podcast about it anyway. My guests today are Eric Jensen, editor of the Saturday Paper. Hello. Jess O'Callaghan, producer at ABC's The Party Room podcast. Hi. And Kate Pern, pediatric nurse in sexual health and a club night safety and inclusivity coordinator. Hey. Thanks for coming, guys. Welcome to the podcast. We're in the final week. Uh, does it feel like everything is beyond our control? Like, like both sides are controlling the messaging so tightly, we just sit back and wait for them to basically dictate the headlines to us? That's, that's what all election campaigns feel like. There's sort of the, the basic tenet of election campaign is that you will enter into a hostage situation which it, with, ever, which, sorry, with whichever leader you happen to be following. And for as long as that campaign runs, you won't know where you're going to sleep that night. You won't know where you're going the next morning. Uh, you'll turn up at um, you know, fruit, fruiterers and, uh, and, and schools and, uh, and, and the odd factory and just have the same thing told to you again and then be loaded onto and the bus. And you're blindfolded in between? You're, you're blindfolded, waterboarding at, at different <laughs> yeah. times. And uh, you can't go to sleep because they're just playing Metallica uh, with, with lights that <laughs> don't off. Um, eventually you confess. But the, the weird thing about this campaign is that it's, you know, most hostage situations are, are diffused fairly quickly. There's usually someone arguing to get you out. This is, this is more like one of those abductions where you're found and you're, you're now 45 and you're living in a kind of tent at the back of the garden. And there's <laughs> a all shell of your former yeah. self. <laughs> With like three children that you can't explain. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's why this has felt like a slightly different campaign because it is so incredibly long. And, uh, and yet nothing more is happening than would happen in an ordinary five-week campaign. Um, if, if anything, this is the sort of campaign that's like, as all campaigns do, blasted everything out of the media cycle, but just put not a single drop back in. There's, there's just this great emptiness that we call the news now, and we've been walking around in it for eight, for eight weeks, desperately, desperately hoping that something might happen. And uh, we can only now hope that after July 2, um, the news might start creeping back in, into society. So it's weird that like, an election would actually take the news away from you, but that's, that's what this one has done, because, because it is so boring. But they've wanted us to talk about like jobs and growth, right? For the kind of duration of the campaign, at least the government's kept, you know, that's all they really want us to be talking about is jobs and growth, jobs and growth. But like this week, everyone was like, no, it's our seventh week of jobs and growth. We're going to go stake out this tradies house instead. Like, so they're holding Which this hostage. Which was way more fun, to be honest. <laughs> they're holding this hostage in a way, but also I think there's a point, there's, there's kind of also an aspect of it where it's just like, no, that's, we're not even going to, your story's so boring now that we're going to do these things that are like, Meaningless. I think that speaks of the desperation, though. We just we want something interesting, like in the staking out of poor that, maybe that, trees. Yeah, that stake out is a huge failing of the media. It's it's like it's kind yeah. of Stockholm syndrome. It's the person who's abducted you is not the person you're critiquing at that mm. point. It's yeah. some poor schmuck who's been dragooned into a, a very badly played ad. I mean, and badly for, scripted. Yeah, for, and badly for the time that we all thought he was an actor. We could only believe that, like, if, if this is George Brandis's definition of excellence, if this is how he's going to fund the arts, <laughs> we're in enormous trouble. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was kind of a relief that he's actually a tradesperson. But uh, to think that he is actually 
a subject in this campaign in the same way that that, uh, that guy who was on Q&A who asked yes, a question about taxation that. becomes the story, taxation is not the story. It, it tells us something about this, this bizarre uh, approach the press has to this campaign, which, which is to say nothing's happening, uh, these kind of frivolous distractions are more important than the few dregs of policy we have to talk about. Yeah. But does it also speak, I mean, I just wonder if there's a fear in the media to criticise politicians to a certain degree because the fact that they have been using these people as scapegoats and like the Q&A example, I mean, the Herald Sun, the way they just attacked this poor man when all he was doing was asking it. I think You're talking about Duncan. <coughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Duncan. We're all first name terms with Duncan. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everyone in the country is now thanks to thanks we to the a toaster. We can go on through. <laughs> <Yeah>. That <laughs> seems fair. Um, but I, th I don't think it's a, f uh, a media fear of critiquing politicians. You look at the front of uh, the Daily Telegraph. Uh, Bill Shorten's there with like a huge Pinocchio nose and a shadow that doesn't quite match up with the picture. And it's sort of, you know, th there's there's not a fear of of critiquing politicians. It's it's more that uh, there's, there seems to be more life in a story where you drag someone who is not professional into that story, someone who has no experience at the media, who is a bad acting tradesperson or, or Duncan. And um, it's, it's the only live bit of the campaign because yeah. the rest of it is so controlled. Mm. And it's not a question of uh, being fearful of critiquing politicians themselves. It's that uh, you get very little access to politicians. Yeah, I mean, yesterday we had uh, Michael Keenan on, on radio um, defaming the Labour candidate for Cowan, um, claiming or was it implying that she was a terrorist sympathiser when in fact she's probably done more than anyone in this country to work on de-radicalisation programmes. And when she calls up to say, let's talk about that, he won't take the call. I mean, that, that, that tells you something about media, uh, media sort of um, subservience in this campaign in some respects. In any other situation, you would put that call through and not tell the minister that he was about to hear from the candidate mm. he was defaming and you would have some interesting radio. Uh, but instead you have a situation where, um, because he's there with his mind, he's controlling which calls come through, and that's kind of mad. And is that the future? Is that the future of politics in the media in Australia? I mean, are we never going because to hear... Because it feels like, like, it just feels like table tennis, right? Like, so, yeah. you know, they, they announced, Labor announces, you know, Medicare's about to be destroyed, Medicare, and then, you know, they just come back with boats. Yeah. It just feels like, you know, it's just tit for tat, and you've heard all of these... You've watched this episode before, right? So yeah. it's kind of, what are people supposed to do other than, you know, pick a quirky story or, you know, well, some side issue to turn into something, well, basically something entertaining. And well, something human, even. Mm. This campaign is also a kind of conspiracy of boredom. I, I don't think either party really want you to be paying attention. Um, partly because the campaign is running so long, so for the first four weeks, they're actually Should hoping... the name of our podcast, Conspiracy of Boredom. <laughs> <That'd be> amazing. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm sure people would subscribe to that. Um, the, the campaign is still running like, like a standard five-week campaign. It's just been smeared very thin across a huge piece of toast. And uh, when, when you look at that conspiracy, it's kind of it's most, most clear in that Facebook debate that that aired at 6pm on a Friday night when no one is watching Facebook. That's like both parties saying, ordinarily these debates were about getting in front of as many people as possible and, and sharing our vision for the country. This was about getting in front of as few people as possible and not saying very much. And if that's the kind of campaign we're going to run, um, what we're saying is, is neither party feel like voters can take a sophisticated message. They know that most of them are going to vote a certain way anyway. Um, it's, it's worth running the odd scare campaign and hoping that you know if, if you can announce three weeks after it happened that a boat might have been turned back 
um, because you're not going well that day, that, that that's how you'll play the news cycle. It's, it's not going to be a contest of ideas. You're not really interested in even getting into those longer form areas where you do discuss ideas. Um, you're, you're really just playing. It's, it's not even small target. It's like no target. They're, yeah. they're, the, the hope is that, that, this, that we'll just ignore this campaign. And, and, and I think, you know, talking about whether or not the, the media is hostage to this, you look, Fairfax pulled all their reporters off the campaign trail. Um, because it was really boring and it's really expensive to be there and uh, and there's no sense in doing it because nothing was happening and that's if, if the you know if, <laughs> if one if, 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 if the second biggest media company or, or you know newspaper company in Basically the country says it's not even worth it we're not even going to send reporters uh, just give us a call when it's all over then that's uh, that really tells you and, and that happened in the second week of the campaign that tells you what kind of campaign we're having and just in, in terms of what we we're saying about bias and access I mean a current affair magically getting access to Nauru, you know, two weeks out from the election. I mean, it's, you know, as much as they say, like, who can believe that that's true? That, that you know, there was nothing planned about it or, you know, like the Guardian didn't magically get access two weeks before. I mean, what do we, what do you make of something like that? I think Channel 9 need to get on top of uh, their, their policies on this. Like a few weeks ago, they go into a foreign country, they see some kids being treated badly, they're trying to abduct them. And, uh, I think these are their policies <laughs> on reporting. <laughs> no, but like, you have a child abduction for 60 minutes one week, and then the next week you go to a place where children are genuinely being mistreated. You don't have to read the Moss report to see the terrible conditions that these kids are being held in. And you go, everything's fine, they've got air conditioning. And then there was a weird piece of camera in that where she turned around and said, and they get fed three times a day. Like, that is, <laughs> that's too much food. I, I mean, if you're, what more can you ask for yeah. on an island prison? <laughs> if you're in prison, you will get three meals a day because you can't go and shop. <laughs> But also giving a platform for, what is he, the Minister of Justice yeah. to be able to claim that all the reports that are made that people are making about sexual assault and rape is just all lies and they just gave him this platform and... Yeah, and they were just like, yeah, cool, oh, okay, it must all be made up. Yeah. yeah. I think it's kind of an indictment on the condition of your country if your Prime Minister appears on a current affair. Like if, <laughs> if a current affair has access to your head of state, then uh, it's time well, to reboot, I think. Also on that, on that score, you have a, a, a person given, given platform to say, there are, there are fewer violent and sexual assaults in this country than there are in yours, everything's fine. It's like, well, no, you dismissed your judiciary, you expelled your coroner, your police refused to investigate. The, the, the women who are found disoriented and beaten in bushes or, or you know, partially self-immolated who have been sexually assaulted and uh, you know, have, have to go and have abortions uh, to be sure that they won't carry the children of their rapists. Uh, this is not something people make up. And, and to, to listen to a justice minister say that when you have a, a, such a dysfunctional justice system in that country and not ask any questions about that dysfunction is kind of extraordinary. It, it's absolutely abhorrent. I, don't know, I don't, really don't know how they can sleep at night, to be honest. I first heard about that, um, the current affair thing on, um, came up in my feed on SBS comedy and they were making some joke about it. But I thought the fact that they had gone to Nauru was the joke. And I was like, imagine if that had happened. <laughs> and it's real. <laughs> There's a standard rule in press is if you do a story and then you have to do a story about how getting that story was t totally okay and you didn't do anything weird. Yeah, that, was more <laughs> yeah. that was actually more, because I didn't think the story was as much of a hatchet job as I was expecting. But then one current affair journalist interviewing another current affair journalist <laughs> about how above board and, you know, how, you know, it, you, no integrity was compromised. That was possibly the most excruciating part of that whole story. 
Yeah, I think that if you're right, the defense, the kind of follow up, this is how we got the story, this is how it's legitimate, that's kind of the, the worst part. And the similar thing happened when Chris Kenny went last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the story was how he got access. Like the story isn't, it's such a story like Nauru is, you know, the story that um, everyone should be able to cover, but we can't um, through lack of access. And the fact that what they're finding from these places isn't the story, the story is how are they getting this story? Like, that's absurd. And it comes from lack of access. Like, it comes from the fact that um, other media organisations aren't able to go to these places and report. Okay. So how, when you're faced with two parties presenting almost identical, very similar platforms uh, that are not even interesting to cover in the first place, how do you avoid bias if you can? Where do you get accused of it? What's the situation for, for journalists? You, you manage bias by making sure that everything you report is true um, and by beating opinion out of your reportage as much as is possible. Um, but, and I, I think the, the interesting thing is the press is overwhelmingly accused of a left-wing bias. There's, there's a handful of press outlets like ACA or um, you know, Chris Kenny at, at the Oz where um, there's no risk of being accused of left-wing bias. But the, uh, the rest of us seem to get accused of that a lot. And, it, and it's because... Uh, when, when you start to interrogate an issue like, uh, like the treatment of refugees on Nauru, um, if you do any work to understand that situation, you will start to be expressing uh, a kind of concern and empathy for what is happening there. Yeah. And it's, it's not a left-wing bias to be worried about children being molested in detention or, or women being raped or, uh, or men self-immolating. But uh, we live in a mad system that says if, if you offer people sympathy or even dignity you're somehow Losing part, objectivity. Of a, part of a kind of p- progressive conspiracy. And uh, I find that to be a really mad thing in this country. I, there's, there's nothing left-wing about wanting a person to have basic human rights and maybe not be running a detention camp that is designed to torture them. That's not a left-wing bias. That's just a, that's a human impulse, I would have thought. But that's exactly what a politically would, correct leading heart would say. That, well, it's true. <laughs> but it was a nice Busted. cover. How do you feel about the facade I built for a second there? <laughs> Um, at the ABC, we actually, election time... At the communist stronghold yeah. known as the ABC. <laughs> Let's, guys. We actually have, I mean, it, the scrutiny around our election coverage is often, is obviously much higher just because we are state funded. So, um, and, you know, have to face up to Senate estimates and things like that. So every second, like every minute that we let someone from either party speak on our show is logged. Um, not on our podcast, on, on what, what goes to X. Politicians don't come on our podcast. So, so I, we actually have to, to time the amount of seconds they're allowed to speak and we kind of get a report saying they've had this much time, the other side's had this much time. You have to, you have to try and dish out those minutes equally. Um, and it's, it's such I a ridiculous level of control. Mm. Yeah, and and I those guess are not necessarily opposing viewpoints. It happens internally and externally. So we actually, it's part of yeah. what we have to sort of serve up. Um, but I guess it's what you do with those minutes and how you how you mm. use them to interrogate um, the people that you have on air. And um, yeah, you just is it actual is it actual talking? Like when Tony Abbott leaves those big pauses and it seems like <laughs> maybe, time. is that <laughs> is he just running down the clock? <laughs> or when he repeats the same thing over and over again? Repeating the same thing over and over again counts if you want to use your minutes that way. I guess. <laughs> Politics in the Wild (gasps) with Madison. Politics. It's this weird world full of heroes and villains where one wrong move could spell your downfall. 
We came to ask some masters of strategy who's playing to win this election. So naturally, we came to a competitive board gaming night in Melbourne CBD. Um, so can you explain to me what it is that you are playing? It's a cyber struggle between a hacker and a mega corporation. Cool, so one person's like Edward Snowden, the other person is like the US government, is that...? Um, sort of. Actually, one of them bears a strong correlation to Fox News. We were playing uh, guillotine. Guillotine. What do you yeah. do in What do you do in guillotine? Uh, well, French Revolution. What do you think? So you've got to execute as many nobles. Who do you think in Australian politics would get you the most points in guillotine? Uh, I'd say Tony Abbott right now. <laughs> do you pay attention to politics? Enough that it's tiring, I guess. <laughs> Sometimes it's as boring as watching paint dry, but. Sometimes it's a great comedy show. Do you feel like they have a strategy or are they just like flailing? Uh, if they didn't, they wouldn't be politicians. I feel like the parties have a strategy. Sometimes some of the individual politicians can be a bit all over the place. Uh, like the, I think my local leader is David Feeney. I feel like but... David Feeney's probably got the worst attacks this Yeah, but he kind of, like, that was a lot of money that he really ought to have declared. Uh, we've all forgotten about $2.3 million. Yeah, so, uh, one of my favourite things that came out on social media this week, I don't know if you guys saw it, was that Bill Shorten was a champion fencer as a teenager. Did yeah. you hear this? He was the under-15 under state champion of Victoria. Which, uh, which is cool for two reasons. One, Shorten has been notoriously involved in the removal of prime ministers. Uh, so, he's a champion knifer as well as a champion fencer. Hey. And also, because it's like... <laughs> Pretty aristocratic, right? Fencing is not really like a, yeah. a working class kind of thing to do. Xavier College is not a very working class school. <laughs> and, about the whole thing. So yeah, and, and Bill Shorten, I mean, definitely more than Malcolm tried. Malcolm tried to look poor, but Shorten definitely like tries to appear or appeal to some kind of working class union esque sensibility. Yeah, like I've only got one house and it's the one I'm living in. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he sculled a beer that one time. Yeah. As well. That one time. <laughs> very publicly. Uh, I think he also refers to his mum as a teacher. She was a teacher. She was like an academic. Yeah. And a researcher. I th Why do you look defeated when I said that? You were like, yeah. That's still teaching. It's, it's teaching, but there's, it's... But don't set up a hierarchy for she's, teachers. She's, but he's trying to convey something. They all do good works. Okay, um, that was a little bit more controversial than it was going to be. I think the much better story is, is Turnbull's story about how, how, as a young man, he had to stack bananas at a fruit, fruit shop. But, no, if you're speaking to someone to who... Very yeah, quickly. If you're speaking to a watermelon stacker, he had to stack watermelons. And then someone because says... he pulled himself up by his bootstrap from bananas to watermelons. <laughs> and someone says, wasn't it bananas? He goes, it was a fruit stall. Like, <laughs> I'm stacking all fruit. Yeah, we didn't have enough guys to be just on lychees. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But the winner, the winner of social media this week was fake trading. Yeah, it was yeah. everywhere. Does anyone want to summarise fake trading? I'll summarise fake trading. Because it's a story of deceit and intrigue. Yeah. There was, so there's this ad. I think we've already, we've already covered it, so I don't want to... There's an ad uh, where the um, tradie was absurd, spoke in this absurd way that it didn't seem like any real tradie would be speaking in that way. It was an ad for the Liberal Party where he was like, all I want to do is... He's holding a ceramic mug and he's going, all I want to do is just get ahead with an investment property. And But the, the last line was the best. What's the exact words? It was like, I'm going to stick with this mob no, for so a while. Why don't we yeah. stick with this mob for a while? For a while. And it was so... Un, it just wasn't a call to action. It was like... Ugh. 
I mean, it was the perfect. That's this election, though. Yeah, it was the perfect expression of this election, where even the parties can't honestly make a pitch for their own yeah. superiority. It's like we all suck, but. <laughs> But why change now? Like, <laughs> and at first, everyone thought that it was so. There was this hunt on to find out if if it was a real tradie or a fake tradie. The hashtag fake tradie was born, and then I saw a photo of like a casting picture of an actor, and they were like, "Oh, it's this guy. It's this actor." Also, in this Andrew McRae, same name as the real tradie, turned out to have. So there's two Andrew McRae's who look a little bit similar, but not that similar sim- enough. Yeah, I similar it. enough. <laughs> and but Andrew McRae, the actor, wrote really just wrote poetry, I don't want to slander someone's poetry, wrote poetry and there was sort of YouTube videos of his poetry and then people started writing fake tradie poems and wow. putting them up on Twitter and this poor guy is actually considering legal action because of the, you know... ABC had their best poems. people just re-watching old episodes of Blue Healers <laughs> yeah. to look for 50 worders who what? look kind of like fake tradie. <laughs> yeah. what? what? Who's he trying to take legal action against? Uh, all the people who, all the media outlets who were writing stories. Oh, who published it? The actor is? The, the actor. Right. The fake tradie, the real fake tradie, the real real tradie, who was in the ad. <laughs> it sounds like a terrible Eminem song. <laughs> the real real tradie. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually, by 48 hours, less than 48 hours after the ad was out there, and we'd been on this hunt for the fake tradie, and the f- many fake tradie um, sort of Twitter accounts had been born, and um, people writing in the voice of fake tradie, um, which is kind of like Oka, but also with fake. a... Like- with aristocratic a hoity-toity Oka. <laughs> <laughs> slang um, written by someone exactly. who's not. And so by, by, and all these sort of, all these people who really aren't tradies were tweeting things like, oh, why is he sitting next to a circular saw outside of that gate? Like, they've never been on a trade oh, site. And apparently he was wearing like nighttime high vis. And I was like, yeah, they would never wear that during yeah. the day. They s- such, such respect for, you know, workplace safety at most building sites. Yeah. Wear the wrong vest and you were out. And so, so then they went and camped outside, outside the real tradies' house, all these media outlets, actual media outlets. So you know, I know Fairfax was there. I'm not sure who, who else was there. There was a number of media outlets was outside of his. <laughs> Chasing him down the street. <laughs> they more important things to do this week. <laughs> um, but he, they were all in his They were speaking driveway. to fake justice minister who uh, <laughs> was running a sham justice department in a tin pot country that we pay to keep our secrets. They were quite busy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and apparently he was a very good sport. He had signed a non-disclosure, like he signed, he couldn't speak to the media. He signed an agreement before doing the ad, but um, they all saw his ute with metal in the back. Uh, he was a real tradie, he was a metal worker, and... Um, That's all it took to confirm his credentials. He's a real tradie, but people are saying he... It's, all very messy. It's still unknown <laughs> if he actually has investment properties. His neighbours say his house is a rental. This is how far into the fake tradie story Wow, this is like, this is like another Duncan situation. It is, it's this real guy who is a tradie, and people are camped out asking him... And now he, apparently he was a good sport at, at first, but now overnight, this okay, a week later, fair, he's been saying, you know... This is ridiculous. Please stop coming to my to house. To be fair, he appeared in like a national TV advertisement. Yeah, but like probably, I don't know. Which I watched multiple times during the current affair episode. <laughs> I have not watched TV in it and Does it was that... on multiple times in the same ad break. Oh, but the thing is, as embarrassing as this whole thing has been for the Liberal Party in some ways, it's probably also been good for them in that we're so focused on whether the tradie is fake or not. No one's talking about... Whether the policies are fake or not. Yeah, or whether someone in, you know, someone who would be in his position actually would be benefiting from ne- negative gearing and whether it actually is sort of the tradies of this world that, you know, truly and, are. And also, as much as, as much as everyone made fun of the ad and how badly scripted it was and how badly, like, delivered it was, 
like they're not dumb, right? Like they've done their message testing, they've done focus groups, they would have shown their ad, that ad to a bunch of people. Like even if people think it's dumb, it's quite possible they're actually connected. Even though like some of it makes absolutely no sense going to war on the economy and people, like, people probably respond to that stuff. Yeah, I read somewhere that like the fact that he didn't come across as an authentic tradie is fine because they weren't actually targeting tradies with that ad. They were targeting people who think that they're, um, that the Liberals' policies are going to be good for jobs and growth. And that guy clearly has this job, you know, he's growing. He's, he's <laughs> acting and, and trading. He's, yeah. he's, <laughs> it's Sorry. probably not called trading, it's probably building. But, you know. Politics in the wild <gasps> with Madison. If you're playing like a role-playing game and like the characters have like a special skill, can I just like shoot some names at you and you tell me what their special skill is? Okay. Malcolm Temple. Gilded armor or something very shiny. Not being Tony Abbott. Jackie Lambie. A necklace of stupidity or something. Nick Xenophon. Being a real people person, you know, he's, he's very much um, concerned with stuff that is brought to him by grassroots supporters. Put that into one word, that would probably be his. Um, superpower, I guess. Like magical hair product. I really reckon we should just start cloning him, make a party of him, and I think Australia would be right. Cory Bernani um, probably has magical underwear, like you know, maybe not the, like the Mormons, but you know, like you know that he thinks that make him really smart, but he's actually not. Erica Betts. Um, I actually don't know a huge amount about him other than he's a bit of a right-wing bigot. Um, That's um, his power. Bob Cutter. Yeah, you get the hat. The hat is a card in itself. You throw it, you win. What do you reckon about uh, what Pauline Hanson's secret skill would be? Racism. So possibly one of the saddest and most poignant moments of this whole election is when Scott Morrison came out a couple of days ago and talked about how he understood bigotry because he's been subjected to it for so many years by people who don't agree with his opinions. And uh, this is in response to Penny Wong talking about a potential plebiscite. Who wants to sum up a plebiscite? In 30 seconds, go. <laughs> so a plebiscite is a vote you don't need to have because you already have a government that are meant to make these decisions for you. Uh, a plebiscite's a vote you have when you have bigots in your party and you don't want to own up to uh, doing what you're meant to do as a politician, which is decide what might be best for the constituents who elected you. Uh, and it costs about $160 million. Bias, bias, bias from Eric Jensen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we can double down. I'd also like to get into the fact that a plebiscite is a vote you have where the opposition to that vote, the Australian Christian Lobby, believe they need special dispensation not to have to deal with the Anti-Discrimination Act during the course of their campaign because they, all they have is bigotry to go on in their argument. And uh, if, if there are laws that prevent them voicing that bigotry, they can't argue properly. This is, the, this is what a plebiscite is. You, you know, the fact that you have one side, one side of that argument saying they can't actually even conduct their debate without descending into hate speech uh, tells you something like that, that is a plebiscite. And, and Penny Wong is quite right to say why when we have a pretty effective institution called democracy set up to deal with these questions, do we then need some bastard offspring of democracy to, uh, to, to get the public to kind of voice their fear? Yeah, to, basically to unleash. So, so Penny, Penny Wong's quote was, and I guess she basically just summed it up in a sentence. She said, I oppose, I oppose a plebiscite because I don't want my relationship, my family, to be the subject of inquiry, of censure, of condemnation by others. And that basically it would unleash hate speech from, like you said, anyone and everyone would be able to make their case, whatever case they have against. against right. I mean, uh, Scott Morrison was not the only person who was sad this week. Cory Bernardi is also quite hurt this week uh, because people think it's homophobic 
to say that if you let gay people marry, uh, people will start possibly having sex with their pets and ultimately marrying them as well. Uh, oh, Corey. Which is all good points, Corey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Kate, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you do, and also, yeah, what you think the immediate sort of aftermath of a plebiscite would be. Like, what what would happen straight afterwards? Well, um, as well as being a nurse, I'm um, also um, involved in <clears throat> a safety and inclusivity coordinator for um, a club night. Basically, my role is to ensure that people are safe, free from harassment, um, free from discrimination, and that they feel safe and included. So that is probably the exact opposite of what would happen if we had a plebiscite. I mean, we're basically opening up the media and organisations to publicly campaign against two people of the same sex being able to show their love and get married. The fact that this is even considered to be um, debated in public is, is just so heartbreaking and, and concerning and <clears throat> just the way that politicians have acted already um, and the fact that it's they're shocked um, that they're being accused of being homophobic. The fact that Scott Morrison has the audacity to claim that people, he's faced bigotry and discrimination um, because of his hate speech. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is basically like a preview of, of what's going to be unleashed, you know, once you open it up. And I think like they, they're very clever in the way they frame the plebiscite as this is a really important thing. And, you know, you guys are saying that, you know, marriage equality advocates are saying that most people are on board, so let's just put it to the people. And a lot of people I know, like, don't automatically think that a plebiscite's like a really underhanded strategy, right? Yeah. They think, oh, okay, this is a good idea. You know, this is some kind of like landmark moment in Australian history where everyone will come out and say, you know, we're gonna take a step forward. Mm. But um, I think underhanded is the perfect word because it's so sneaky. Because A, it stops the Liberal Party Admitting, either admitting that they're bigots or be um, voting for same-sex marriage and losing a whole lot of their votes. It also gives them control. So there's no, there's no legislation in how the plebiscite has to be run. So they can do it basically however they want. So they can um, choose whether it's just going to be a count of votes or it could be per electorate, so you have to have a majority of electorates agreeing. It, it can be manipulated. They can rig it. Any, the yeah. wording as well, yeah. so what the question it could be, they could make it really confusing. They Put could something at the end about having sex with dogs. Classic Bernardi move. <laughs> Classic Corey. So not only is it incredibly expensive, it's opening really vulnerable people who are already in a really high risk of facing you know, discrimination, harassment, suicide, the whole shebang um, puts them in a really vulnerable position, but it also enables the Liberal Party to keep control of this and potentially manipulate it in a way that even though polls show that the majority of Australians do want this, they could just, if Australians want this and they just need to vote for it in Parliament, it'll be fine, but they could, we could end up with a no and then where do you go from there? And also, that there is no legal reason to have this plebiscite. Let's remember that the, re the only reason we're having a plebiscite is because it's the last chance for those people in the Liberal Party who don't want to see same-sex marriage legislated to possibly find a means by which to not have it legislated, to, to as you say, to, to game a vote, to, 
to create to, a mandate, basically. Well, and, and also to, to play with the fact that uh, when you have free votes and stuff like this, when you have referendums, they very rarely get up because the public are very loath to change things. Um, the public instead do the thing they, they elect politicians whose job it is to do this for them. Yeah, and, it's, and, and so it's a fundamental kind of dereliction of your job as a politician. Be like, yeah, I'm meant to be governing, but I don't want to on this one. So if I could just uh, handball that back to the electorate at great expense, that would be great because it's, it's I'm actually uh, not sufficiently brave to take any kind of moral stand on this issue. And it's kind of a fake, like, oh, we're putting it back in the hands of the people. It's like, you never do that for anything mm. else, yeah. right? Like, why? Yeah. What is this we magic moment? We didn't even moment? debate going to, to, to the, Iraq, the second Iraq war. Mm. We didn't even debate that in the parliament. Uh, this, that seemed like more people died as a result of that than will uh, die as a result of, uh, of two men being able to marry each other. But apparently, smaller issue for us. No, like, I know Scott Morrison's come under a lot of criticism, but I think, I don't know, I feel like people are not giving him credit in terms of how much courage it would take to come out and talk about his history of persecution like that. I mean... <laughs> for the scomophobia for, that he's been facing. For a straight, rich, white male politician to talk about his... I mean, think about all of the younger, straight, white, rich male kids out there. The kind of strength it must give them to see Scott come out and talk about their experience. Oh, where are their safe schools going? <laughs> where are the safe schools for rich white kids? Where? It's a real In lack of it's a real lack of empathy really. Like it's just I think that some people genuinely like I think he he genuinely believes what he's saying. Mm. He genuinely oh, he doesn't understand. What he's I mean it, they I just think it's there's this gap between where people can't imagine what can't imagine that someone has it any worse than, than they do. Like, they, he sees an equivalency between the discrimination that, that Penny Wong's scared that her family's going to face if, a, if, you know, her right to marry her partner is up for public debate as a legitimate kind of binary debate in the Australian public's all allowed to sort of comment on that. Um, and, yeah, he, he does, like, he sees an equivalency between that and him being sort of slammed for, for remarks that he's made. Like, and it's... And he has some issues with rhetoric. This, this is a man who quote, uh, quoted Bono in his maiden speech. So <laughs> he's, he, he, he does not find it easy to uh, look for the words that might best express his opinions. <laughs> what quoted Bono? What was the Bono quote? The Bono quote was, uh, it was about the need for, um, for more generous foreign aid, which obviously uh, in government as treasurer, he has been very keen to see that happen. Uh, we've never had less money in our foreign aid budget. Bono, uh, you know, in the same way that Bono might be a tax avoider, turns out Scott Morrison not true to the words of Bono <laughs> when he uses them. But I think, I mean, I don't know why we're surprised. Though. The Liberal Party, again and again, have just showed us how like, completely unable they are to acknowledge their privilege or see feel empathy for someone who might not be a rich white man. And to the fact that having someone disagree with your views, that they can equate that to the you know, constant oppression that a minority might face is, is not surprising, really. So, you know, not to bring the mood down, but uh, staying on uh, out of touch rich white dude bros, <laughs> Eddie McGuire, Eddie McGuire and co added again with um, basically Make, joking about drowning Caroline Wilson, like really... For entertainment. Really, out, yeah, and, and to raise money yeah. for charity. Like, they're really just outdoing themselves. Um, and, and what, like, what are the consequences? Nothing, really. This sort of stuff gets said on radio all the time. Like, I worked in commercial radio for four years, and it's just not... Um, 
condolences. It's not unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just not unusual. Um, and that sort of... It's like, like half of the Party Room podcast. It's <laughs> Fran, Pat, don't drown him. <laughs> Put her in the sink. <laughs> It's just not. I wasn't. I wasn't shocked when I heard it. I, it just felt. It sounded familiar. Like it's not. Um, and I'm not specifically talking about the places I've, I've worked, but also like broadly, it happens everywhere. This stuff happens no, all yeah. the time. And this is, yeah, it was happening on multiple stations that day. And it took a, a week for anyone to notice, which tells you that everyone listening to that bro- live broadcast mm. just went, oh yeah, drowned Caroline mm. Wilson. That's kind of funny. And just kept Moved going. On. You know, so so the entire this this kind of. Um, backward interior we have in this country that, that still watch the footy show and listen to Eddie McGuire on radio. Um, no one in that audience thought to complain. What I found interesting was listening to the playback of the show and Eddie makes a statement about, you know, wanting to drown Caroline. And then he goes around and asks every other person there, you know, do you agree? Will you put in? And, and they all say, oh yeah, yeah. And it's sort of that, that group mentality, you know, we're all in this together, we're yeah. all drowning her together, except there were, I don't know, there's one guy who... Yeah, who, there was one guy who's like, I'm on Caro's side of this yeah. one or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so both party leaders snubbed Eddie in one way or another, so Malcolm Turnbull flat out sort of condemned what he said and Shorten, I think, cancelled an appearance on his show, but Julie Bishop said, uh, she dismissed the whole thing saying, if we're going to take offence at every silly offhand remark or attempt at humour, then we're not focusing on the really important issues of the day. Which are? <clears throat> definitely not definitely not stopping people from talking about drowning women live on air. Well, I think what's interesting about Julie Bishop is, I don't know if she's changed it recently, but she has said that she doesn't consider herself a feminist. She hasn't changed it yeah. recently. Whereas shocked. Malcolm Turnbull What she says out- is she doesn't find the term useful. Okay. Okay. Whereas Malcolm Turnbull has called himself a feminist. And I think um, you guys were talking about this on previous podcasts about that different power dynamic in that Malcolm Turnbull, a white man, he can call himself a feminist and everyone's like, oh, that's really good. Julie Bishop didn't get to where she was by associating with feminists or even reminding people that she was a woman. Just like, don't don't worry about that, guys. I'm just just here. Yeah. (laughs) If you you just can totally ignore the work that feminists did to say, get her the vote or allow her to be a politician. So it it doesn't surprise me why she would feel the need to, you know, not condemn Eddie and distance herself from sort of that, you know, those feminist critique because that's sort of her strategy that she's, that's got her to where she is so far. Politics in the Wild (gasps) with Madison. Do you think Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten is playing the game better this election? Labour are definitely gunning for the young vote. Uh, hey, young people, we're like cool too and stuff. Um, I would actually probably say neither of them. I don't think either of them are doing particularly well uh, for different reasons. I think Malcolm Turnbull is shackled to a bunch of idiots. They have a lot of more memes this election, I've noticed. I mean, I don't like memes at the best of times. <laughs> What's the other guy's name? Bill Shorten. Bill Shorten. He, um... That's telling, I think. It is telling, because, yeah, he is kind of... He's just boring. He does have a good team around him, but they chose Bill over Anthony Albanese, and, like, that's a bit telling, I think. So, everyone's upstairs still playing games, but we're going to head off, because I can't work out for the life of me how to play any of them. We came to try and talk about the strategy behind politics, the game of it, and found a bunch of people who were like really well informed about policy, which is, you know, when you're covering politics, that's refreshing. 
So as much as we were talking about how the most interesting things this election have been not the election, uh, what are your guys' favorite cringeworthy slash just bizarre moments to the election so far? Uh, so my top favorite uh, kind of cringeworthy moments, but I think they were well handled on the whole, um, is the introduction of pet rats into the election. Um, so four weeks ago now, the first rat, which was um, Malcolm Turnbull was on a street walk in Lindsay in Western Sydney with his candidate there, Fiona Scott, and he came across a um, man who had a pet rat in, his, in the hood of his, um, in the hood <laughs> of his jumper. And um, Fiona Scott introduced a constituent um, and he said, this is my pet rat splinter. And um, Malcolm Turnbull Campbell, to amazing, his credit, amazing <laughs> to his credit, patted the rat, stroked the rat, and um, Fiona Scott then looks like, you know, we can move on now. It's, you've patted the rat, well done, Malcolm. Let's and get he, the hell out of this situation. Um, but Malcolm kind of sees the moment and says, "How old is your rat?" <laughs> and, um, and the guy goes, "Great oh, Malcolm impression." Goes two, like two years old. He sleeps with my cat and my dog, and sometimes cleans my teeth when I'm sleeping. Oh and, no! Um, hey, um, before you move on, what does that mean? Yeah. He's not using a little brush. <laughs> what is? I don't know how you get a rat to clean your teeth. I think he gets in there and picks the detritus from him before consuming the corpse. It's yeah. horrific. <laughs> who was the Who was the rat owner? A man named I think Steve or something similar. It's um yeah, and Fiona Scott was. Do we know what he does? No, no. They, no one staked out his house, yeah. thank God. No one, okay. Thank God. It was a busier week than this no week. One wanted, no one's wondering whether he was a real rat owner or a fake rat owner? <laughs> if, you see, if you see him, you'll know. He's, He's a, a real, real rat, rat owner. owner. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I saw a photo the of him. The difference between him and fake trade, he, he genuinely looks like a, a rat lives in his have hoodie. a rat living yeah. in his hoodie. Yeah, he's great. Um, so Malcolm Turnbull generally, it was thought, handled that really well. Um, you know, oh, we have we have a national threshold like rat touching. That's yeah. convincing. I sensed an intimacy. Exactly. Nothing weird, Bernardi, but just I sensed a comfort. Like no one knows why he asked how old is your rat, but I think he just needed he something to else yeah, to he say. Was I think that's what he says yeah. about kids. It, this was one of those bits where he couldn't say. You know, I used to work in a fruit grocer. Well, I'm very familiar with rats. Yeah. <laughs> when I was growing up with my dad, we had a rat in the house. <laughs> yeah. We rented, but the rat wasn't ours. Kate. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to talk about Peter Dutton's um, claim that asylum seekers are both going to simultaneously steal all of our jobs and languish on Medicare, but it's, it's kind of depressing. And I, I've got a new favourite one. I just um, discovered that um, the Labor's like 100 positive policies. Um, one of the 100 was that they're going to reduce the entry cost to Questacon. So <laughs> I don't know if you guys all know Questacon, but it's like science works of Canberra. Oh, okay. So it's like this like cool, like learning museum and there's all these like puzzles. There's a giant slide. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah the giant slide. It's Barry slide. Jones' Wait, gift no, to the I've nation. I've been there, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. So. Was it the slide that kicked in for you? No, it was the Science Works of Canberra because that's exactly how my friend who took me there explained it to me. I just thought that was like the cutest policy ever that we're like, oh, we're going to reduce entry costs so more what, people what to? can... Like to Questacon. No, no, but how low will it go? Oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Still not in Eric's budget, unfortunately. Well, this kind of this was kind of floating around this week, and I know on, on at their launch on Sunday they had people wearing a shirt to represent each. They had a hundred people wearing these shirts to represent each of the hundred positive policies, and I was like, does someone actually get to wear the lowering costs to quest shirt? <laughs> and can imagine we if get people a were copy? fighting over that T-shirt. <laughs> oh, that would go on eBay. <laughs> uh, Eric. Yes. 
at this, the first moment that was my favorite moment, it was the first kind of exciting moment in the whole campaign was David Feeney misplacing a two point something million dollar house that he's not living in, in the electorate that he should be living in. Uh, and then trying to explain his way out of it by saying that things were very busy for him when he bought the house, he just forgot to disclose on the parliamentary uh, interest, uh, you know, interest register that, that he had indeed bought this house. Um, but this kind of, this, because nothing was happening, there's so much spare oxygen in this campaign. This, this then grew out to uh, realizing that the people tenanting that house were mad green supporters and uh, <laughs> were, had a, had a, um, a what do they call it? Conflute. Conflute yeah. in the front yard for, uh, for the Greens candidate in Batman. Um, and, you know, this upset Feeney. Feeney then went on to Sky News to do one of their sort of morning rap type things, was asked uh, what the Labour position was on the school kids bonus. And just sort of a little bit like when Tony Abbott stops talking, just went dumb, tried a couple of new, new attempts to get in. He's like, oh, the baby bonus. And they're like, no, no, the school kids bonus. And then just- It was really kind of like, hey, look over there. Yeah, but yeah. Well, and then he started, as the member for Batman, this was the best bit. He just started going, you'll have to speak to the shadow. You'll have to speak to the shadow. <laughs> uh, and, and the, well, the you segment, don't know whether the shadow is another minister or one of his other personalities. <laughs> Very difficult to say. Or one of his spare houses. I don't, you know, <laughs> one of the identities with which he buys homes. Um, it was shelf company. <laughs> it was just a very weird bit early on in the campaign that then led to him going because he knew it was all over. Just going like, you know, I've had a really bad week. <laughs> <laughs> you have, but not so bad because you own an investment property. Yeah, you only had a bad week that you made for yourself. <laughs> yeah. And after that appearance on Sky, he left behind his talking points. His brief yes, his <sighs> confidential notes that then got published. Yeah. yeah. But look, in fairness to Feeney. Most people get access to those briefing notes. They're not they're not hugely uh, classified. They're notes that are sent to every every candidate. Way to ruin a good story, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they're like the Labour Party's going to do what? <laughs> it's more like oh um, yeah, we we think negative gearing is a bad thing. Yeah, they're, they're not hugely, dodge the question yeah. about the house. At yeah, all that's costs. right. I like to there's, how that There's really nothing in there about the school kids bonus, though. I think we know that. Yeah. For I like how that story um, didn't break because anyone was like trawling through, seeing if anyone had undeclared properties. Someone asked him, like, "Do you actually live in Batman?" And he was like, "Yeah, I have a house there." Yeah. And, and, <laughs> wow. Just one I forgot to disclose. Yeah. Well, uh, let's end this entire series with your final thoughts on the election. Silence and defeat. Um, snore emoji. Too long. I'm thinking it might be like that bit when they finally break through the forest of, of weird cars and stuff at the back of the hostage situation. You're in your little tent and we'll come out and just the, the, like the, the final scenes of Room. I loved that film. That was a feel good film. It'd be like that, uh, but, but with a um, sausage because there's a sausage sizzle at the election uh, for polling booths and I love that. The democracy of sausage is the best thing. That's, we've been waiting four years for the democracy sausage, but the last eight weeks have this really is an amazing made it metaphor. Serious. It's gone throughout the entire episode. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. That was our final episode. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. You can watch video highlights and more election coverage on vice.com. I'm Amar Rahman. My guests today were Eric Jensen, Jess O'Callaghan, Kate Pern. The Vice production team is Katie Roberts, Andrew Kavanagh, Anu Haspel, Dom Juca, Greg Cooper, Madison Connaughton, Heath Armstrong, Ahmed Yusuf, Laura Pelt, Alex Watkins, Ben Helwig, Jamie Snyder, and Tosha Van Vienendal.